You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch, but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. Alright, so we are going to look at the birth of Jesus, and um, so we're going to do it today. We're going to do it next week, and then the 22nd will be probably uh, then just looking at, then at other texts about Jesus, and probably a, short, a shorter one, where then we'll do communion, and it's before Christmas and all that. So, um, <clears throat> and probably, I think maybe on that, I'm not sure, I think maybe that Sunday too, we're going to have a few uh, Christmas songs um, with guitar and cajon and these people singing, maybe. Is that the 22nd? Maybe? Yeah, hopefully we can Okay. <laughs> All right, so, you know, tis the season. So, uh, so today, though, we're going to look at Jesus' genealogy. We're going to look at, start in Matthew, very beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Verses 1 through 17, and to some it may be like, oh, all right, so so we're going to start at this very beginning of this, okay? And so the first three Gospels, they're all somewhat similar, right? Because they record the experience of three men, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all right? They were all eyewitnesses or influenced by eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life, all right? But they're not identical, right? It's different because of different people, different experiences. Uh, you get this with eyewitnesses, right? Different stories with different people. That makes some people question their trustworthiness, right? An example for one of those reasons is that only Matthew and Luke's Gospels include the genealogy of Jesus, okay? But Luke's genealogy is different than Matthew's. And we would hardly expect genealogies to be different. Okay, so I want to address the, the genealogy uh, specifically today. Uh, and the reason is simple. It's because most of us skip it. <laughs> right? This is, that, this is a lot. I mean, 16 verses of a bunch of names, right? It's a list of names. Some are, can be hard to pronounce. Why bother? Right? It, whatever. Let's just get to the next part, right? Most people would turn to chapter 1 here and just go to 18 and get to the birth. All right? But it's helpful. There's helpful information in there. All right? So they're there for a reason. So why skip them? What, we, we ought not to do that. So why not learn from them instead? Okay? So I'm going to... I'm going to read all 17 verses and do my best. At some, there's a couple of weird names. Most are easy in this one. All right, but I'm going to start at one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, 
and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, pretty common name there in the middle of all those, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father, father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father, father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Ezekiah, Ezekiah, right? I don't know how to do that one. And (laughs) Ezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Unayud. And Unayud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azar. And Azar, the father of Zaduk. And Z- or Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Madan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. (laughs) So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right. Now, each gospel author, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wrote to record the events of Jesus' life and ministry from their unique perspective. Okay, so Mark wrote primarily to Romans of his day. Luke wrote to the wider Gentile audience. Matthew wrote to Jews dispersed throughout the empire. All right. Now, John's gospel is more unique. It's very different from the others because he purposely chose, well, he was inspired to focus on certain events the others didn't mention. So when we find one gospel's account of Jesus's life differing from the others, we combine all of them and assimilate the accounts to gain a single record. Okay. So if we compare Matthew and Luke, then we find they are written from the perspective of two different eyewitnesses. And I believe this is important. Matthew's gospel, we find uh, intimate details of Joseph's experience. In Luke, we find intimate details of Mary's. All right. In Matthew, we learn Joseph's inner thoughts. Yet Matthew has no record of Mary's thoughts. And then vice versa, right? Luke's account, we learn what Mary's thinking, 
and there's no record of Joseph's thoughts. There's no mention of an angel visiting Mary, right? In Luke, we have that description of that angel visiting her, but no mention of an angel appearing to Joseph. So there's different perspectives. So it seems Joseph was Matthew's source of the backstory on Jesus' genealogy, okay? While Mary was Luke's source. Naturally, then, each author's account reflects the perspective of their respected source, okay? So this is a lot more teaching today than anything else, so that we can move into the birth. So the genealogy in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph's family, right? The genealogy in Luke is Mary's genealogy. Mary was likely still alive when Luke wrote his gospel, so he could have interviewed her. Matthew probably received Joseph's account secondhand from Joseph's brother, or uh, sons, I'm sorry, from his sons, because most assume that Joseph was dead by the time Jesus started his ministry, because there's never any mention of him. All right, so knowing all of this, then we read Matthew's genealogy, understanding he's telling a story uh, through Joseph's perspective, all right? And not, and this is important, not as the father of Jesus, okay? Because he's not, okay? So we have to keep that in mind. So it's Joseph's perspective, but not as the father of Jesus, but uh, as the husband of Mary. Okay, so for the Jews keeping genealogy records, it, it just wasn't a hobby like we do today, all right? We're not sending our DNA to get tested to ancestry and then signing your DNA rights away to them because that, they have that in their contract, so be wary. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> you sign everything, your DNA, to them in the contract, <laughs> in the fine print. <laughs> so... So it wasn't just this hobby, though. It wasn't this family treat thing. I, I, I know people who, I, I know a lady in West Frankfurt who has spent over a year, she's putting a family tree together. I mean, extensive study, right? But it was crucially important of being Jewish, okay? God assigned the Jewish nation as a special place among the nations of that known world. He made covenants with that people. He gave promises to the nation as a whole. All right, so those covenants and those promises were inherited through these family lines. All right, so the most important promise God gave Israel was to bring a Messiah, a Savior for the world through the Jewish nation, right? So it's all important for the Jewish people to maintain a certain understanding of who was truly Jewish and who wasn't. So genealogy records were used for this purpose, okay? So if you claimed to be a Jew, um, much more a priest or an heir to the throne of David, it was necessary for you to prove your claim, all right? So they had very meticulous genealogies for every tribe, and they, they were stored and carefully preserved in the temple, right? For centuries, okay? So these, and they were open, these records were open to the public, for any Jew to, ins to inspect the records or records of others, okay? So Matthew opens this, and this is a Jewish gospel. He opens it with Jesus' gene genealogy on Joseph's side, and he does so to prove something about Jesus' claims, okay? We have no reason to doubt his genealogy whatsoever. We, we have to keep in mind, in his day, it would have been easy for anybody to refute the genealogy if they wanted to or verify it anyone could have just went to the archives in the temple looked it up 
And yet we have no historical evidence whatsoever of anyone ever disputing the accuracy of the genealogies that we have in Matthew and Luke. Okay? So the question we need to answer while looking at this is what was Matthew trying to prove about Jesus with it? Because there's a point. It's not just the family tree, okay? Matthew, he's, he's introduced this by calling it the record or the book of Jesus, right? And it says the son of David, David and then the son of Abraham, okay? But he, he, he brings Abraham in, and that's not, that's not his given name. It's not Abram. And he introduced this genealogy by this record, the son of Abraham, So we know God made a covenant with Abram, right? Promising to bring a nation of people from his seed, his family line. And through this line, God says he would bring a certain person to bless all nations, both the Jews, both the and the Gentiles. And we knew we know that this was the promise of Jesus. God changed Abram's name to Abraham to mark his promise. All right, it's like Ab, uh, Abraham, like him, because Yahweh. It's part of a God, a pronunciation of the Hebrew God's name in the pronunciation of Abraham's name. Now, so beginning this genealogy with Abraham, calling this Jesus the son of Abraham, testifies that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Right. Then Matthew also identifies Jesus as the son of David. But his, why, da, why mention David's name at all, especially before Abraham's name? You have to question that. It's not very Jew, Jewish because they always think that the father of the father having greater authority than the son. Right? Abraham had greater authority than anyone who came from him, including David. All right? David received a covenant promise from God concerning an eternal dynasty, right? We know this. That his throne would be eternal throne. The Lord promised David he would raise up a ruler from his family, his family line, to rule Israel and the world forever. So inserting David's name before Abraham's name indicates that Jesus fulfills both covenants. Jesus is the son of David, meaning Jesus was the promised king, coming in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And Jesus is the son of Abraham because he is the promised. All right? He's the promised seed sent to bless all nations, not just Israel. All right? So they're in this order because the Davidic covenant is uniquely Jewish. It's for the Jewish people, whereas the Abrahamic covenant is for all peoples. So he puts the Jewish covenant first and then the one that covers Gentiles second because this is a Jewish gospel. This is written directly to Jews. Then at the end of it, in, in verse 17, he's arranged this genealogy in the three groups of 14 names. And by, by comparing his genealogy to others in the Old Testament, we find that he's intentionally left out several names. Okay, while adding a few names that a Jew would not expect to find at all. All right, now there's five kings in Jesus' family line that are missing, while four women have been added. It's very uncommon. Very uncommon for that. All right, now the missing, missing names or leaving out names, that's not a big deal, okay? 
uh, by the pra- that practice of skipping here or there is very common. All right. So um, just an example, if you could trade, if you had records and my dad's name's not there, but my grandpa's name's there, it skipped, him, you know, skipped him like, you know, just who he was still. Right. We're not forgetting him. We're not disproving or it's not uh, refuting anything. He's still there. Okay, so <clears throat> that so it's not an issue. J- Jews understood that jumping over a, a generation didn't invalidate anything or anything like that. So Jews commonly left out names. They produced a numeric symmetry, or to provide commentary on a family tree. So Matthew wants to achieve both. So he drops some of Jesus's ancestors to yield three groups of 14 names to make a point. And he inserts this four women to make a second point. Matthew is pointing us to the theme of his gospel as a whole. And we see the theme clearly in verse one. This is Jesus. It's about him. First, Matthew wants us Uh, wants to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the promised eternal king of Israel, and the numeric value of Jesus' full name is 749. That's 7 and 7 times 7. So if we add up the Hebrew numbers of David's Hebrew name, we arrive at the number of 14. They had this... uh, They didn't have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 like we do. They had their Hebrew Hebrew alphabet where there was letters assigned to the letters, right? And you go to, up to 20, and then it goes to 30, and then up to 100, and then it's 200, and all this. So this was Hebrewic uh, number system, which is unique. So when you get to, like, that's a little information. When you get to the book of Revelation, and John says, hey, here's some wisdom to anybody that can calculate the number of the beast, it's 666. So you spell that out in Hebrew, it's Nero Caesar, which lived in the first century. Okay, so there's another reason to keep Revelation in the first century there, okay? So his full, Jesus' full name is 749. It's 7 and 7 times 7, all right? David's Hebrew name, we arrive at 14. Matthew arranges genealogy into three groups of 14 to speak out the name of David three times. Okay, Jesus is the eternal David, the king God promised to bring his people. In verse 17, how Matthew connects his first and second groups of names by mentioning David again. There were 14 generations between Abraham to David. There were 14 more from David to Babylon uh, or Babylonian captivity. And for 14 generations, David's descendants held power. And for 14 generations, they lost it. You can't help but to notice David's prominence in the list. You cannot miss the point when you see that. After 14 generations, the son of David has come to rule again. Very important. Secondly, Matthew draws our attention to Jesus fulfilling Abraham's promise as well. All right. And notice the four women I said that have been inserted in this list. They're all Gentile women. If you get, did you guys know that? Uh, Tamar and Rahab, they're Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite and Bathsheba was a Hittite. 
And three of these women are guilty of sexual sin of one kind or another. So Matthew includes four Gentile women in Jesus' genealogy to testify that Jesus fulfills God's promise to Abraham to come to to save the Gentiles as well. So the Babylonian captivity was a result of Israel's rebellion against the Lord. All right. So through the prophets and Jeremiah and Daniel, the Lord declared he was placing Israel under judgment for a time to give opportunity to the Gentiles. And this judgment period would culminate with the Messiah coming to rescue Israel after setting up his kingdom. So Matthew's genealogy has been carefully constructed to introduce two themes, okay? First, Jesus was the fulfillment of the promise that God gave David to bring Israel a king. And secondly, he's the fulfillment of the promise that God gave Abraham to bless all nations. David's name is listed first in verse 1 because Jesus came to the Jews first as their king, offering a kingdom in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And Abraham's name is listed second because after the Jews rejected Jesus and the kingdom, Jesus would turn to Gentiles in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So finally, it's going to be shorter, man. (laughs) Short day. I thought it would be a lot longer than this. While Jesus was Joseph's heir, he was not Joseph's descendant. So when I earlier I said this is not as Joseph's father, but as, as, Joseph, as Mary's husband, right? He is not a descendant, okay? Does anybody know why he has to make this? He only shared a physical relationship with his mother Mary, right? When you look at Mary's genealogy in Luke's gospel, you find that Mary also descended from David. All right. So Jesus is an heir to the throne through his father. That would still entitle him as an heir. And a biological descendant of David through his mother. Okay. And he's, he has, Matthew wants us to know Jesus was not physically related to Joseph. And it strengthens, strengthens his arguments to a Jewish reader who would know their Old Testament. So it, back in Jeremiah, it's in 22, the Lord pronounced a curse on the line of David's descendants, right? On a king by the name of Jeconiah, which we read in the genealogy. God cursed the king for his disobedience, declaring that no descendant... <clears throat> Of, um, sorry, I lost my, my place because I'm looking over there. <laughs> God cursed the king for his disobedience, declaring that no descendant of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne of David again. All right. So when you see that Joseph is a descendant of the cursed king in verse 11, you're like, uh, what's up with that? So if Jesus had been a physical descendant of Joseph, then Jesus would have been prevented by that curse from occupying the throne of David. And Matthew couldn't ignore that fact. All right. So like I said, any Jew could look this up, go to the temple, check out the records. Okay. And then learn of this connection. So you can be sure too. I I know it's assumption, but 
uh, I would say you could be sure that his critics certainly would have pointed to this connection, right, to discredit him if they could have. But Matthew preempts any criticism by providing Joseph's genealogy and doing so demonstrates that Jesus was not a blood relative of Joseph. So through Joseph, Jesus meets the requirements to be an heir to the throne. And through Mary, he meets the requirements to be a physical descendant, right? But Mary's, Mary's genealogy doesn't go through Jeconiah. So it clears Jesus of the curse. So he fulfills everything properly. All right, so according to Matthew, then Jesus is the king that was promised to Israel. And he's the savior that's promised to the world. Matthew wrote his his account to persuade a Jewish audience, okay? And he was a Jewish tax collector who Jesus called to be an apostle, disciple. Uh, And Matthew wasn't looking for a savior, but the savior found him, right? Much like us. Much like us. So he wrote this account specifically to Jewish readers of his day, the men and women who had overlooked and even rejected and took part in crucifying their Savior. 2,000 later, his gospel is still reaching the Jews. Matthew's gospel also emphasizes the faithfulness of a sovereign God to fulfill his promise to bless Israel and and the world through a Savior. That God foretold everything that happened in the rest of this entire gospel, too, by and large, through the prophets, all right? He carried everything out precisely. It's accurate to the T. Like, it's all, like, it's sometimes blows your mind. But precisely as he promised he would, and even the death of his son. And I believe that Matthew challenges, or the, I believe Matthew's challenge was to explain to the people in that moment that his death, that Jesus' death, was not the end, but it was only the beginning. All right? So I know we celebrate this, this birth, right? But it's really the death that's the beginning of it all. Okay? That's why I say that. And we know that then the Gospels, they go on to tell all of this. And that's the point. That the account is written to save souls. It's to point... To everything that's in the old that, that comes to pass through the prophets uh, and through the person of Jesus. It's not just an ancient historical account. Matthew didn't write this to make you feel good, right? <laughs> it's not about you. He didn't make it to make, uh, write it to make you feel good or to tickle an ear. It was written to change our hearts, all right? Especially the Jewish people's hearts. To move us out of darkness and into light of salvation through faith in Jesus as Messiah. Right? So when you know your, the history and you know the Old Testament and you can see that if Jesus is to be incarnate, he has to fulfill everything properly as well. That's why genealogies are here. That's why it's important. You know, I learned some stuff studying this and preparing it. And I know it can sort of seem boring to some people, um, but we have to we have to get through this part to get to the next part, which is the birth. Right. But the whole point is the gospel. 
That's why it's the gospel according to Matthew. That no matter what lives we have led, no matter the sin, right? And in, in all truth, actually, the worse you are, the more you're in need of him. People always say, I'm just not ready. I'm, I, I ain't got my stuff together yet. That's the point. <laughs> You'll never be ready on your time. Yeah, right? You've always had enough. There's always the worse you are in your sin, the more you need a savior. So it's not and it, it isn't cause to think you're unworthy, but rather cause to embrace him as well. He was born and we celebrate that that birth. But he was also crucified because humanity was broken, dead and trespasses and sin. So we really should think of all of it on both Christmas and Easter. Right. There's not much about his being a baby. There's not much about him being a child. Right. The whole point of his birth is to come to humanity so he could fulfill the promises that God has made to be that sacrifice, to be that high priest, to reconcile the world to the father. So the re- and the rest of this account tells us. Because of this, that we can be forgiven of our sins by God who sent his only begotten son to be born and to die for that exact reason. All right. Jesus was born and died on the cross to be our savior. So all sins wiped clean by that one sacrifice, that one sacrifice, our faith in it is all God requires. And Jesus says to anyone who comes to him that he will not cast out give eternal life and that's what i want us to think about this this christmas season